Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Foundations Quite how much of the root causes of the rebellion Richard understood as he stood in the Tower of London and watched England burn, we cannot know. He did, however, feel himself spurred into action, as a king, and a Plantagenet king at that. The dispersal of the peasants' revolt showed that in this pale-faced boy of fourteen there was a streak of great personal courage and an appetite for leadership. It also scarred him for the rest of his life. The events were almost impossibly dramatic. On the morning of Friday, June 14th, Richard convinced a large deputation of rebels to leave London and go to the fields of Mile End, where he promised he would meet them to discuss their demands. Once they did so, a royal procession made its way through the still tumultuous city to a conference. Richard rode out accompanied by his half-brothers from his mother Joan of Kent's marriage to Thomas Holland, his young uncle Thomas of Woodstock, now Earl of Buckingham, the Earls of Warwick and Oxford, William Walworth, Mayor of London, the veteran soldier Sir Robert Knowles, and various others. His mother, Joan of Kent, rode behind them in a gig. She was a popular figure in the city and generally acted as a conciliatory political influence during the minority, but even she was powerless before the mob. All around them sounded shouts and cries from agitated rebels and townsmen, but the royal party pushed steadily on to Mile End. Behind them in the tower they left Archbishop Sudbury, Treasurer Hales, and several royal servants whom they knew the rebels wished to kill. The plan was to use the royal absence as a diversion, and allow the marked men a window to escape by river. The plan failed. As the frightened men in the tower tried to board a boat by the tower gate, they were spotted by an old woman on the river bank who raised the alarm, forcing them to retreat back into the fortress. At Mile End, meanwhile, Richard granted the rebels everything they asked. He commanded that charters be distributed guaranteeing that there would be no return to serfdom, that labour would be free, and that every man could rent land for a maximum of four pence per acre. He also naively agreed that Tyler and his men could be free to hunt down all the traitors they desired and bring them to him for judgment. This sealed Sudbury's and Hales's fates. Having failed to escape from the tower, they were dragged out and murdered when the mob broke in. Their heads were put up on poles and paraded around London, before being stuck up on London Bridge, where for several days they perched above the entrance to the city, Sudbury's red bishop's mitre nailed crudely onto his skull. Eight others died in the same way. They included John of Gaunt's personal physician and John Legg, a member of Richard's personal bodyguard. Gaunt's son, Henry of Bolingbroke, who was also in the tower, escaped capture and death at the rebels' hands only when a resourceful soldier hid him in a cupboard, a fateful decision that was to have a profound impact on the kingdom's future. The sound made by the mob, wrote the chronicler Thomas Walsingham, was not like the clamour normally produced by men, but of a sort which enormously exceeded all human noise, and which could only be compared to the wailings of the inhabitants of hell. After the fall of the tower, London descended into chaos. On Cheapside, where just a few years ago the street had run with wine, now a wooden chopping-block was set up, 
and the ground was soaked with the congealing blood of men and women murdered by the crowds. In St. Martin's in the Vintry, the bodies of more than one hundred Flemish traders were piled lifeless in the streets. They had been dragged from sanctuary in a church and murdered by a mob whose idle hatred for foreigners was stirred by the perception that the Flemings received special privileges from the government. All around there was a general orgy of murder, looting, and rapine. Targeted disorder soon gave way to general rioting. This went on throughout the day and the following night, with hideous cries and horrible tumult, wrote the Anonymal Chronicler. By Saturday it was clear that drastic measures were required. The holiest part of the Plantagenet Mausoleum, St. Edward the Confessor's shrine at Westminster Abbey, had been violated when a group of rebels dragged out the disreputable warden of the Marshalsea prison from his hiding-place and took him as a prisoner to Cheapside, where he was beheaded. A rumour had started that Watt Tyler and John Ball intended to burn the whole of London down, capture the king, and make him the figurehead of their new order, in which there would be no lordship but theirs. The king and his shrunken pool of advisers took refuge at the wardrobe in Blackfriars, a well-stocked arms store, and concocted another desperate plan. As charters continued to be pumped out by scribes at Chancery, granting freedom from lordship to the people of England, word was sent to the rebels in London that the king would meet with them again at the tournament fields beyond the city at Smithfield. Richard steeled himself for the most dangerous moment in his young life with prayer at the confessor's shrine, where hours earlier rebel hands had seized another victim. When he arrived at Smithfield in mid-afternoon, he had Walworth, the mayor of London, close by his side. Walworth and Knowles had put word out to the loyal men of the city that they would be required at some point soon. A battle was anticipated. Richard came face to face with Watt Tyler in one of the most bizarre meetings in Plantagenet history. The rebel leader appears to have been drunk on success after a weekend of lordship over all of London, and by extension the realm. He surprised Richard by shaking him roughly by the hand and telling him to be of good comfort and joyful, for within the next fortnight you shall have forty thousand more of the commons than you have now, and we shall be good companions. These were startling words to a boy who had been anointed king by an archbishop now dead at the command of this ruffian, but Richard kept his composure. According to the Anonymal Chronicler, who wrote what was probably an eyewitness account, he conducted negotiations with Tyler in person. The king asked him what were the points he wished to have considered, and he should have them freely and without contradiction written out and sealed. Thereupon the said Watt rehearsed the points which were to be demanded, and he asked that there should be no law but the law of Winchester, a demand for a return to central policing as it had operated under Edward I, rather than by local gentry sitting as J.P.s, as developed under Edward III, and that there should be henceforth no outlawry in any process of law, and that no lord should have any lordship, but that it should be divided between all men, i.e. that all social and legal hierarchy should be abolished, and except for the king's own lordship. He also asked that the goods of the holy church should not remain in the hands of the religious, nor of parsons and vicars and other churchmen, but that the clergy should have a sufficient sustenance, and the rest of their goods should be divided among the parishioners. And he demanded that there should be only one bishop in England and he demanded that there should be no more bondmen in England, no serfdom or villainage, but that all should be free and of one condition. It was an extraordinary set of demands, a manifesto so revolutionary that it verged on madness. But Richard, attempting to appease Tyler as he had done at Mile End, again agreed that Tyler should have all that could be fairly granted, saving to himself the regality of the crown and then he commanded him to go back home without further delay, and all this time that the king was speaking, no lord nor any other of his council dared nor wished to give any answer to the commons in any place except the king himself. Richard had shown composure well beyond his years. When Tyler demanded a flagon of water and spit rudely at the king's feet, it prompted one of the royal party to insult the rebel leader. A fight broke out, and in the melee Mayor William Walworth drew his dagger and thrust it deep into Tyler's side, mortally wounding him. 
Then the mayor left the scene to rouse the city militia under Knowles to put the rest of the rebels to flight. Now came Richard's crowning moment. Tyler's army was arrayed on the other side of Smithfield from the negotiations, but it was clear to them that something had gone badly wrong. Tyler mounted his little horse and rode back toward his men, crying treachery. As he fell to the ground before them, half dead, they realized that they had been tricked. They began to bend their bows and shoot, wrote the chronicler. Richard, understanding that something had to be done, shocked his own party by spurring his horse and riding straight out to the rebels, declaring that he was their captain and their leader, and that they should follow him. It was a moment of astonishing courage and quick thinking, worthy of Edward III, the Black Prince, or any of his most illustrious forebears. Overwhelmed by his majesty, the rebels bowed to their king. As he distracted them, the city militia began to arrive. They surrounded the rebels at Smithfield, and herded them out of London with minimal bloodshed. The day was saved, and to a very large degree it was the fourteen-year-old boy king who had saved it. Revolution had been averted, if only for a while. This audiobook is continued on Disc 16. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones continued. Disc 16 Return to Crisis Richard at fourteen had shown the mettle of a king. He would show soon that he could also summon the wrath of a king. He played a prominent role in the bloody judicial retribution exacted against the rebels following the revolt. Richard may have presented himself as the rebels' friend during the crisis at Smithfield, but as soon as order was restored, his instinct was for fierce and merciless revenge. His famous words on tearing up charters in front of rebels who had come to him pleading for restitution were, "'Villains you are, and villains you will remain, in permanent bondage, not as it was before, but incomparably harsher. While, by God's grace, we rule over this kingdom, we shall strive to keep you in subjugation, to such a degree that the suffering of your servitude may serve as an example to posterity.' It was cruel, vindictive even, but decisive, too. All in all, his actions during the crisis of 1381 boded well for the fourteen-year-old. They showed also that he was coming toward an age when he could start governing in his own name. The continual councils that had been a feature of the first years of his reign had ceased after three years, and government now was carried out directly from the king's household. From May 1381 onward, the records show a noticeable rise in royal orders coming from the king himself, or at least sealed with his signet, expressing some measure of personal approval. At fourteen he was able to marry, and he did so with no delay. His bride was Anne of Bohemia, the sister of Wenceslas IV, the king of Bohemia and the emperor-elect. Richard was persuaded to take her as his wife after a three-year campaign by Wenceslas and Pope Urban VI, which had convinced the English court that it would be a propitious marriage. Anne's sister was Queen of Hungary and Poland, and her aunt Bonner had been married to King John II of France. More important, however, was the role of Richard's marriage in wider European politics. Since moving from Rome in 1309, the papacy had been under French protection in Avignon, and a succession of French popes had been elected. In 1377, however, Pope Gregory XI, a Frenchman, had moved the papal curia back to its spiritual home in Rome. His tenure there was short-lived, and when Gregory died on March 27, 1378, rioting had erupted in the turbulent Eternal City, with a mob demanding that an Italian be elected his successor. Urban VI, who had been born Bartolomeo Prignano in the Kingdom of Naples, was duly installed as Pope. This proved intensely dissatisfying to a number of French cardinals, who fled Rome for Avignon once again after Urban's election, and elected their own Pope, Robert of Geneva, who became known as the Anti-Pope Clement VII. For the next thirty-nine years there were two Popes in Europe, one in Avignon and the other in Rome. The period is now known as the Western Schism. The result of the schism was to draw ever clearer fault lines across the continent. Richard's marriage to Anne of Bohemia cemented his kingdom's place in the dispute, 
It made very clear that like the German and Italian rulers, England would follow the Roman Pope Urban VI and oppose the French anti-Pope who was supported by, among others, France, Scotland and Castile. If there had been any hope of bringing to an end the ruinous state of mutual hostility between England and France, the Western Schism dashed it. Richard's marriage was also a financial burden on the overstretched treasury. Richard's new brother-in-law, King Wenceslas, was broke. Had Richard married an Italian princess, he might have received a substantial dowry. But instead of profiting from his marriage, he found he was expected to loan Wenceslas £15,000 to seal the alliance. It was poor business indeed, and when Anne was married and crowned in January 1382, Londoners expressed their disapproval of the alliance by tearing down a sheet bearing the royal arms crossed with the imperial arms that decorated a fountain in the city. They were a strange, fragile couple. The Westminster Chronicler described Anne as a little scrap of humanity. Richard was blonde and radiantly boyish, with slightly protruding eyes, and the long, mournful face that was so characteristic of the later Plantagenets. He did not grow a beard, and despite an emerging propensity for violent tantrums when he felt his royal dignity was under threat, he had a shy, stammering manner of speaking. Nevertheless, when the fourteen-year-old Anne arrived in England in December, it was the start of a loving relationship. Over the years the king proved truly devoted to his new wife. Around these two wispy teenagers an elegant, extravagant royal court began to congregate. Even as a young man Richard was developing a taste for the finery of kingship. He adopted his grandfather's and father's taste for pageantry and courtly spectacle, although he was never to share their enthusiasm for riding in tournaments or throwing himself directly into the melee of battle. His would be far more of a visual aesthetic kingship, in which public manifestations of divinely anointed authority and elaborate forms of ritual came to the fore. At Eltham, Kings Langley and Sheen, the royal palaces were reworked with beautiful private bathrooms, ballrooms and sophisticated kitchens and spiceries, serving the very latest in rich, delicate and heavily spiced food. Richard, Anne and their courtiers followed the very latest in fashion the men in tight hose and codpieces, with jewelled high-collared robes and expensive doublets, the women wearing fitted gowns, exquisite jewellery, and shoes so long and pointed that they had to be supported by garters joining them to the knees. Their court was designed to radiate the magnificence of Edward III's court, and it ran up debts with just as much alacrity. As the household developed its own style, it slowly began to change in personnel, too. Old companions such as Sir Simon Burley remained close to the king, but some of the older servants of the Black Prince gave way to a younger crowd of chamber knights, men like John Beecham, James Berners, and John Salisbury. At the heart of day-to-day -day government was Michael de la Pole, a former servant of the Black Prince's, who was in his early fifties and had initially been placed in the household at Parliament's request. De La Pole's father had been a wealthy merchant and a key financier to Edward III, and he found great favour with Richard, too. But the real darling of Richard's court was Robert de Vere, the young Earl of Oxford. De Vere was only five years older than Richard, and his closeness to the king aroused some of the same suspicions and grievances that had accompanied the rise of another royal favourite, Piers Gaveston. The scathing chronicler Thomas Walsingham would accuse de Vere of having used black magic to manipulate Richard, and implied that there had been a homosexual relationship between the pair. That is unlikely, but what was clear was that Richard, like every young king, intended to have his own men. This meant a creeping isolation for the older heads, and particularly for the king's uncles, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, Edmund Langley, Earl of Cambridge, and Thomas of Woodstock, Earl of Buckingham. The older magnates found that Richard and his circle frequently treated them with disdain bordering on hostility. Grants of land and castles to favoured knights cut across the established lords' local power structures. Meanwhile Richard's personal immaturity and petulance alienated several of his most senior noblemen. This was not simply a matter of disgruntled personalities. Although every king had the right to choose his advisers, he would come under intense criticism if his alienation of powerful and experienced men led to a general diminishing in public order and foreign success. 
In Richard's case this was precisely what happened, but when the Earl of Arundel criticised the King's rule in the Salisbury Parliament of 1384, Richard turned white with anger, and according to the Westminster Chronicle, told Arundel that if it is supposed to be my fault that there is misgovernment in the kingdom, you lie through your teeth, you can go to the devil. On another occasion a year later he had a furious argument with Archbishop Courtney of Canterbury. When Courtney upbraided him for the poor conduct of government, Richard drew his sword and tried to attack the archbishop. He was only prevented from doing so by his uncle, Thomas, Earl of Buckingham. These were obviously unbecoming actions for a king. His irresponsibility in rewarding his friends for doing very little grated in many parts of the realm. But his forebears had learned that the political community would tolerate the king's friends so long as they did not seem to be damaging England on the battlefield or using their position to seize other magnates' property. In the first case, however, Richard was unfortunate. The war was turning unstoppably toward the French during the 1380s. As his court flourished with new men and splendid pageantry, so the position across the Channel collapsed. To call English prospects on the continent dim during the early 1380s would be an understatement. Compared with the heyday of Edward III, they were downright embarrassing. Only Calais and a thin coastal strip of Gascony remained in English hands. The Channel was plagued by French and Castilian ships, while what passed for the English navy rotted in port. Trading was so perilous that wool revenues hit rock bottom. The situation was so dire that London's citizens considered a scheme to build a giant chain across the Thames to protect the city from burning raids. The death of Charles V in 1380 and the accession of his son Charles VI lulled French aggression briefly, but the new king was equally determined to kick the English out of the continent. Without a king like Edward III, committed to war and with a vision of how to achieve victory and unite the realm behind the effort, the English war machine splintered into disarray. Differing strategies emerged. For John of Gaunt, the future was Castile. He had married Pedro the Cruel's daughter Constance of Castile in 1372 as part of the deal-making preceding the Battle of Nahera. His brother Edmund Langley married Pedro's younger daughter Isabella at the same time. When Pedro died without male issue in 1379, Gaunt formally claimed the throne for himself. Thereafter he believed in the Way of Portugal, English conquest through Iberia. His brothers supported him, but it was essentially a private, dynastic focus that drew Gaunt ever further away from the centre of politics in the 1380s and did not help the national interest one shred. For most Englishmen the path of warfare lay in Flanders, it was closer to home, and the fortunes of the trading cities of northwestern Europe had real significance for the English wool trade, which remained central to the nation's economy and a vital source of royal revenue. Moreover, the county of Flanders was under direct threat from Charles VI's uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, who aimed to conquer the rich trading cities one by one. In 1383, the warlike Bishop Dispenser of Norwich, who was the grandson of Edward II's favourite Hugh Dispenser the Younger, and who had played a major role in putting down the 1381 revolt in East Anglia, launched a crusade to Flanders, by which he aimed to use papal license to protect the territories from falling to the Duke. Alas, despite ample funding and parliamentary approval, the mission was badly equipped and returned to England a dismal failure. By 1385, Flanders had fallen. It seemed increasingly clear that the best route out of France for the time being was to sue for peace. The dream of rebuilding the ancient Plantagenet Empire, let alone of uniting the French and English crowns, was over. In 1385, Richard was eighteen. He was no pacifist, but he was highly unenthusiastic about the idea of launching another offensive in France, fruitless and expensive as it would be. Although all three of his uncles, Gaunt, Buckingham, and Cambridge, urged him to commit to more fighting, Richard was inclined to listen to those like his Chancellor, Michael de la Pole, who counselled caution. Had he wanted to fight, it was most unlikely that Parliament, skittish in the aftermath of the Peasants' Revolt, would have granted the necessary taxation to do so. That summer he led an expedition to oust French garrisons from Scotland. It was a pragmatic option. 
The king could lead the nobility, demonstrate his capability on the battlefield, and bolster military confidence without running up too heavy a bill. What followed was a fiasco. Richard marched north with an army that included almost the entire nobility, all the English bannerets, and around 14,000 men. When they reached the Scottish border, he marked the occasion by raising Edmund Langley from Earl of Cambridge to Duke of York, and Thomas of Woodstock from Earl of Buckingham to Duke of Gloucester. He also raised de la Pole to the Earldom of Suffolk, and his friend de Vere to the wholly unprecedented position of Marquis of Dublin. In a stroke, de Vere outranked all the other English earls, and stood virtually on a par with the royal dukes. Just as the sky is rendered clear and bright by the stars, so dignity makes not only kingdoms, but kingly diadems shine with its light, Richard later told Parliament. But the bolstered prestige did little for Richard's military prospects. As his army advanced, the Scots declined to give battle. They retreated into the hills, wasting the countryside as they went. It was the same tactic that had reduced Edward III to tears of frustration in 1328. The Scots dodged the English advance, slipped south, and burned Carlisle. The English reached Edinburgh in mid-August, found that they were starving and had no one to fight, and fell back to Westminster within three weeks. It was a feeble expedition which achieved nothing. By the time Parliament met in October 1386, the mood of the country was mutinous. The list of grievances was long. English foreign policy was in the doldrums, royal finances were parlous, and there was mounting hostility toward Michael de la Pole's competence in managing the king's money. John of Gaunt had left the country in high dudgeon, having been deeply unsettled by the snub given to his advice during the Scottish campaign, and also by rumours of plots by the chamber knights to assassinate him. Across the Channel, Charles VI was said to be raising a forest of masts at Sloys, the largest invasion armada ever aimed at England. Advice given to Parliament directly following the failed Scottish invasion had been utterly ignored. An unusual memo to the King included an ominous suggestion that Richard should attach to himself persons of estate, of probity and of honour, and to associate with them, and eschew the company of others. For if he does this, great good and honour will come to him, and he will win the hearts and love of his people. But if he does the opposite, then the contrary will happen, to the great danger of himself and his realm, which God forbid. The king's response to this particular note is not recorded, but the official parliament rolls record his response to similar requests made while the parliament was sitting. It is laconic but telling. The king will do as he chooses. What precious little taxation had been granted was now utterly wasted, while the impoverished king had seen fit to raise up his friend de Vere once more to the position of Duke of Ireland. This gave him plenary powers, and a rank that put him fully on a par with Richard's royal uncles. De Vere became the first duke not of the royal blood. Henry of Gromont, the first duke of Lancaster, had at least been Edward III's cousin. Comparisons with Gaveston's award of the royal earldom of Cornwall were hard to ignore. It was clear to everyone who attended what came to be known as the Wonderful Parliament in October 1386 that the country was suffering a crisis of leadership. The attacks came as soon as Parliament opened. When Michael de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, stood before the assembled masses to open the Parliament and announce the King's plans to lead an invasion of France, the Commons erupted in complaint. They blamed Suffolk squarely for mismanaging the king's money and spending it in ways other than those stipulated by Parliament, for allowing the English navy to fall into disrepair, and for failing English allies in Ghent by refusing to send them aid, which had resulted in the loss of Ghent to the Duke of Burgundy. He was also accused of misappropriating funds and sources of royal income for his own personal gain. In general, the Earl was reviled as the figurehead for all the inept advisers around the King, and the Commons demanded that he be removed from his position and impeached on numerous charges of incompetence and negligence. They refused to go any further with parliamentary business until this was done. Now the King's true colours emerged. Richard was a married man who had led his country on campaign. Outraged by the Commons' impertinent demands, he refused to come to Westminster, 
and sent a message from his manor at Eltham saying that he would not dismiss so much as a scullion boy from his kitchen on Parliament's say-so. In an attempt at mediation, his uncle Thomas of Woodstock, newly Duke of Gloucester, and Thomas Arundel, Bishop of Ely, were sent to Eltham to negotiate face to face. They found the king in a shrill and belligerent mood. When they tried to reason with him, he berated them. The chronicler Henry Knighton recorded the details that reached him of their conversation. They said to Richard that if a king refused to come to Parliament, by his own irresponsible resolution, then Parliament could dissolve itself after forty days. This drove Richard into a rage. It was clear that his uncle and the bishop had touched a streak of deep paranoia within him, developed no doubt through the experiences of his youth. "'We have long been aware that our people and commons intend to resist and to rise against us,' he shouted at them. "'And in the face of that threat, it seems best to us to turn to our cousin, the King of France, and seek his support and aid against our enemies, and better to submit ourselves to him than to our own subjects.' With an invasion fleet less than one hundred miles away, Gloucester and Arundel exclaimed in a state of disbelief, "'The King of France is your chiefest enemy, and your kingdom's greatest foe!' They reasoned with Richard, pleading that he should, "'Think how your grandfather, King Edward III, and also your father, Prince Edward, in his name, sweated and laboured all their lives in heat and cold, in tireless endeavour to conquer the kingdom of France.' Remember, too, how peoples too unnumbered withstood in that war death and the danger of death, and how the commons of this realm have poured out ungrudgingly their goods and possessions and uncounted treasure to sustain the war. It was finally only after a veiled reference to Edward II's deposition, Your people have an ancient law which not long since lamentably had to be invoked, that the king was shaken out of his fit of pique and forced to accept that his government had to be reformed. Cowed, Richard eventually came to Westminster. There he had to watch in ignominy as the wonderful Parliament expelled Michael de la Pole and the treasurer Sir John Fordham from their posts, and set up a commission to hold office for a year. It was to audit the royal finances, take control of the exchequer, and exercise authority to use the great and privy seals. In effect, it took government totally out of Richard's hands. The king, now nineteen years old, was reduced once again to a state of boyhood, his kingship as good as revoked. It was almost more than his proud young heart could bear. Treason and Trauma Just over a year after the wonderful Parliament concluded its business, on December 20, 1387, Robert de Vere, the Duke of Ireland, moved cautiously through the winter fog heading for Radcote Bridge near Chipping Norton in Oxfordshire. He had with him several thousand men recruited in and around the King's earldom of Chester. The countryside he moved through was thick with his enemies. Danger truly lurked around every corner. He was riding hard southeast to meet the King in London. The Plantagenet crown faced yet another crisis. Far from being repaired in the aftermath of the wonderful Parliament of October 1386, relations between the King and his leading subjects had completely broken down. De Vere was heading for London in the knowledge that very soon England would erupt into violence. Richard was once more at the mercy of his subjects, who were rising in revolt against his rule, and in particular against De Vere's influence. De Vere knew that he was riding against time. The combined armies of some of the most powerful noblemen in England had been sent out to capture him. Enemy companies fanned out across England, occupying not just the villages of the Cotswolds, through which he now picked his way, but the whole of the Midlands. Everywhere west of Northampton was seething with hostile forces. It would not be long before they arrived. How could things have sunk to this point? The answer lay largely with Richard. His response to the reforming council imposed upon him at the end of the wonderful Parliament had been both petulant and severe. Humiliated and aggrieved, the king had spent the first few months brooding in his hunting lodges of the Thames Valley. Full of resentment and anger at the way he had been treated, he had left London in February 1387 defiantly to undertake what one chronicler called his gyration, a tour of the realm during which he avoided the inspections and interferences of the council, and assessed just what support he had in the country at large. The tour had lasted nine months. 
He had travelled from Beverley to Shrewsbury and concentrated for the most part on the northern and northwest Midlands, close to his royal principality of Chester. He had taken with him his friends, de Vere and Michael de la Pole, and as they travelled, Richard began to formulate a plan to reassert his authority once the council's term expired. He noted that his magnates now mobilized support by retaining personnel and paying them for their loyalty. In exchange for regular cash payments, they wore their lord's distinctive badges and often uniforms, protected their interests, and fought for them if required. As Earl of Chester, he could do something similar. He could create a permanent power base of retained men whom he would have no cause to fear, with no concern that they would turn on him, and no dread of the public chastisement that his supposedly natural supporters, the lords and commons of his royal realm, had heaped on his shoulders. A plan had formed. Richard would effectively set out to build himself up as a powerful private landed magnate as well as king. During the summer of 1387 Richard also began to explore the legal means by which he could reverse the work of the wonderful Parliament. Twice in August he had gathered together in secret the leading judges of the realm, headed by the Cornishman Sir Robert Tresillian, who as Chief Justice of the King's Bench was one of the two most senior judges in England. Richard questioned them about the ordinances by which he was bound. Their verdict, browbeaten out of several of the judges with threats of death, was published in the form of judicial rulings, which stated that the statute, ordinance, and commission made in the last Parliament was derogatory to the regality and prerogative of our said Lord the King. Moreover, and here it is easy to discern Richard's deceptively forceful hand, when the judges were asked what punishment they deserved who compelled or forced the King to the making of the said statute, ordinance, and commission, they replied unanimously that they were deserving of punishment as traitors. This was a fateful reply. The spectre of treason had haunted Edward II's reign. It was the irredeemable charge that had justified the murders of Piers Gaveston, Thomas Earl of Lancaster, Edmund Earl of Kent, and Roger Mortimer Earl of March. In an effort to prevent such bloody misery from ever again afflicting England, Edward III had passed the Treason Act of 1351, which limited the definition of the crime to attacks or plots on the lives of the king, the queen, and their eldest son, rape of the king's eldest daughter, murder of the chancellor, treasurer, or chief justices, or making war against the king in his kingdom. Now Richard was blowing the definition of treason wide open once again. A traitor was no longer someone who tried to kill the king, his family, or his most senior officials— it could be anyone who attempted to reform the realm or regulate the royal household. The judges, pressed by the king, had agreed that all those who had constrained him in 1386 could be considered traitors. Traitors, too, were any who ignored a royal command to dissolve Parliament, impeached a royal minister, or reminded Richard of the fate of his great-grandfather, Edward II. The opinions of the judges were terrifying in their implications. When Richard returned to London in November 1387, it was clear from everything that there were now only two likely outcomes to the summer's activity, a judicial bloodbath or civil war. And civil war was what de Vere was preparing for as he hurried south through Oxfordshire. He himself was the casus belli. During the king's gyration a new opposition, whose specific aim was to kick out de Vere and all others like him from the king's company, had gathered. They were known as the Lord's Appellant, for on November 14th Thomas Duke of Gloucester, along with the Earls of Arundel and Warwick, had made a formal approach to the King, appealing, or formally indicting, those around the King whom they thought guilty of treachery. The list of the accused contained five names, Alexander Neville, Archbishop of York, Michael de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, Robert Tresillian, Chief Justice, Nicholas Brember, merchant, former mayor of London and loyal hero of the Peasants' Revolt, and Robert de Vere, Duke of Ireland. The king, furious at the presumption of the lords, had attempted to raise troops, but he failed. The county sheriffs would not recruit men for him, claiming that all the commons supported the appellants. The Londoners, to whom Richard appealed directly, refused to rise in his name. De Vere's Cheshire army was the only hope. And so, as he marched his force through the damp, wintry countryside, de Vere knew whom to fear. 
Gloucester, Warwick, and Arundel were loose, and they had picked up two useful allies, John of Gaunt's son Henry Bolingbroke, who now held the title of Earl of Derby, and Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham. These five made a formidable team. They had supporters among many leading London families and knights and gentry across England. Their armies spread like fingers around the Cotswolds, preparing to wrap themselves tightly around de Vere. On the morning of December 20th, de Vere fought a small skirmish against the Duke of Gloucester's supporters somewhere near Borton on the Hill, his first encounter with appellant troops. In a confused battle, many of de Vere's Chester men deserted. Later that day, probably at Burford, another skirmish took place against the Earl of Arundel's men. De Vere's lieutenant, Sir Thomas Molyneux, was killed. It was therefore in some desperation that the Duke pushed his men on toward Radcote Bridge, where he was hoping to cross the river. According to the chronicler Henry Knighton, he believed that if he had been able to cross the bridge it would have kept him safe from his enemies. Fighting his way south of the Thames, he calculated, was the only way to make it safely to Richard in London. But he was out of luck. As he led his men toward the pointed stone arches of the twelfth-century bridge, he found that he had been beaten to his mark. At either side of the crossing stood armed men and archers wearing the livery of Henry, Earl of Derby. Turning, he saw Derby himself coming up from his rear with a large body of soldiers. De Vere was trapped. There was no choice but to give battle. As trumpets blasted and the royal standard was hurriedly unfurled, there was a general mumbling among the troops that fighting was uneven and unwise. There were too few in comparison with the enemy, wrote Henry Knighton, nor dared they affront so many of the lords and nobles of the whole realm. De Vere panicked. If he was captured there was no telling what his fate might be. A cycle of violence had begun, and it was unlikely that he would merely be exiled from the king's presence. He had to save his skin. He charged his men toward the bridge in an attempt to cross, but when they reached the bridge they found that barriers had been erected and the road was broken in three places. It would be impossible for more than one horse to cross at a time. "'We have been fooled!' cried the duke, and changing horses he attempted to flee alone down the river bank. But looming in front of him was an even worse fate. As Henry Earl of Derby approached him from behind, the Duke of Gloucester himself was coming up ahead. De Vere had only one option left. He gambled on his life. Spurring his horse, he cast off his gauntlets and his sword and plunged into the Thames, wrote Knighton, and thus he escaped with wonderful daring. As de Vere fled, eventually sailing for refuge in France, his men promptly surrendered. Richard spent a sombre Christmas in Windsor. On December 30th he met the five triumphant appellants at the Tower of London. They marched in with five hundred heavily armed men, closing the gates behind them. The meeting was stormy. The appellants castigated Richard for his behaviour. They produced damning correspondence between the King and de Vere, and accused him of wanting to use the King of France against his own subjects. They demanded that the five men they had accused be brought to justice, and that the king's household be purged. When Richard proved truculent, they threatened to depose him, suggesting that they had already chosen his successor. One chronicler suggested that they told the king he had been deposed already, and that only a dispute between Gloucester and Derby over which of them should inherit the throne had prevented them from enacting the deposition. Richard was forced to give in to their demands and call a Parliament at which a new settlement could be thrashed out. Parliament opened at Westminster on February 3rd. Lords and Commons gathered together in the White Hall at Westminster, which was richly painted with a series of scenes from the life of Edward I. Whitehall remains the name of the bureaucratic heart of British government. The King took his seat before the assembled estates and prepared to hear the worst. Then, according to the chronicler Thomas Favent, the most noble five appellants with a numerous throng entered the hall together arm in arm wearing cloth of gold, and after staring at the king bent the knee to him in salutation. There was a mass of people filling the hall, even to the corners. Over the days and months that followed, detailed legal arguments were put forward against the accused servants of the crown. 
The initial list of charges alone took more than two hours to read aloud. They were accused of giving treasonable advice to the king, offering to sell English castles in France back to the French king, and stealing money from the royal coffers for themselves. Somewhat embarrassingly, four of the five accused had absconded and were tried in their absence. Only Nicholas Brember, the former mayor, was present, and his trial began a fortnight after Parliament opened. The verdicts, however, were the same whether the accused were present or not. Archbishop Alexander Neville of Canterbury, the Duke of Ireland, the Earl of Suffolk, and Sir Robert Tresillian were all found guilty of treason in their absence. The Duke, Earl, and Judge were sentenced to be drawn through London and hanged as traitors and enemies of the King. The Archbishop was eventually sentenced to exile. All four men were to be disinherited. Brembo was present at Parliament and protested his innocence on all charges, which in his case included allegations of illegally executing prisoners in London's jails, accroaching royal power, resisting the appellants, and forcing the citizens to swear oaths of allegiance to the king against his enemies. He offered to fight his accusers in judicial battle, but the request was not allowed, and he was condemned to a traitor's end, dragged on a hurdle to Tyburn before being hanged, drawn, and quartered. He recited prayers for the dead all the way to the gallows. And more drama followed. Archbishop Neville, Robert de Vere, and the Earl of Suffolk had all managed to escape overseas, but Tresillian had not. Six days after he was formally condemned in Parliament, a strange figure was spotted spying on the proceedings at Westminster from a nearby rooftop. The house was raided, and inside, cowering under a table, was Sir Robert, the hanging judge and scourge of the rebels of 1381. He was dressed in beggar's rags and wore a thick false beard, but his distinctive voice betrayed him. Cries went up of, We have him! and Tresillian was dragged from his hiding place to Parliament, leaving his wife swooning behind him and screaming himself for the sanctuary of Westminster. But sanctuary was denied him. Tresillian was dragged in short order on a hurdle to Tyburn and forced up to the gallows platform, whinnying in terror. When his clothes were cut off, all could see that he had covered his body in protective charms. There was a dark irony to a judge's relying on superstitious trinkets to ward off the noose. Tresillian was hanged naked. In the end he was put out of his misery when his throat was slit. But the appellants were not finished there. Once they were done with Brember and Tresillian and had condemned the other three appellees in absentia, Parliament launched a bloody purge of Richard's household. Proceedings began against many more of those who surrounded the king and were deemed to have led him astray. By May, Richard's beloved tutor Sir Simon Burley, as well as his household knights Sir John Beecham, Sir John Salisbury and James Berners, had all been tried and sentenced to a traitor's death. Dozens died in a wild bloodbath aimed at wiping out anyone whom the appellants viewed as being connected even in the slightest way with Richard's hapless regime. The judges who had advised Richard that the ordinances of the wonderful Parliament were treasonous were now themselves also sentenced to die. Only at the end of the Parliament were they spared and sent off to live in exile in Ireland. Richard sat through nearly four months of state trials and saw his friends and allies hauled off one by one to be hanged, disemboweled, and beheaded. He was forced to preside over the Parliament and became increasingly desperate as it proceeded. When Burley's time came, the king argued so violently with Gloucester that a fight almost broke out. Richard begged desperately for the old man's life, as did the queen, who went down on her knees to the three leading appellants. Indeed, Burley's case to live was supported by several more moderate earls, including Edmund Langley, Duke of York, and even the two lesser appellants, Henry Earl of Derby and Thomas Earl of Nottingham but at the merciless Parliament there was no escaping death and destruction. Burley was executed just like all the others. Richard, at twenty years old, had seen enough humiliation to last a lifetime. The Reinvention of Kingship The five or six years that followed the merciless Parliament were remarkably calm for Richard II, Many of his closest friends had been either exiled or killed by the appellants, 
but once the purging was over, England settled back into a state of curious peace. The appellants had achieved everything they set out to do. Richard had been brought to heel. There was not much left to fight for on either side. Evidence seemed to suggest that Richard had taken on board some of the lessons of the time. He appeared, outwardly at least, to be trying harder to rule effectively. On May 3, 1389, he made a dramatic scene at a meeting of his great council. Sitting himself before the members, he interrupted a session of the council by asking all those assembled how old he was. They replied accurately that he was now twenty-two. Richard then launched into a speech whose tone was reported by several chroniclers. According to Henry Knighton, he said, "'It happens I have spent some years under your counsel and rule, and I give great thanks to God and then to you, because you have governed and sustained both my person and my inheritance. Now, however, by God's care, we have attained the age of our majority, and are indeed already in our twenty-second year.' Therefore we desire and will the freedom to rule, and to have our kingdom, to choose and appoint to those posts our officers and ministers, and so freely remove those who are now in office. According to Thomas Walsingham, Richard then commanded the Archbishop of York, Thomas Arundel, to resign the Chancellor's seal. The king collected it in a fold of his dress, and suddenly rose and went out, and after a short while he came back and sat down again, and gave the seal to William Wickham, Bishop of Winchester, although he was very reluctant to take it. And he created nine other officials, using in all things his own judgment and authority. The Duke of Gloucester and the Earl of Warwick he removed from his council. This could have been a disaster, but it was not. Richard set about governing with a good deal more responsibility than he had before. He asserted his right to choose his counsellors and those who gave him more informal advice, but he also accepted that he was bound to listen to the advice of experienced men like Wickham, who had been his grandfather's chief minister during the 1360s. He was aided by the return from Castile of John of Gaunt, with whom he was reconciled, and who now became a staunch supporter of the regime. Gaunt allayed tensions between Richard and the former appellants, through lavish hunting parties for the king and queen, and took to walking arm-in-arm arm with the king whenever he could. The king proclaimed his gratitude toward his eldest uncle outwardly by wearing Gaunt's livery collar, two interlinked S-shapes. In 1390 he granted him palatinate, that is to say quasi-royal powers in the Duchy of Lancaster, which would be entailed to his male heirs. Furthermore, the king awarded Gaunt the Duchy of Aquitaine for life. This was a significant break with Plantagenet tradition. Aquitaine had been the inheritance of the king's eldest son and heir since the thirteenth century. Its altered status gave Gaunt a vested interest in finding peace with France. Gaunt rejoined the king's council in March 1390, and an agreement was drawn up stipulating that all decisions with financial implications had to be approved by all three of the king's uncles. Richard apparently accepted this, and a new state of consensus was reached, through which the king and the political community began to work together once again. As a result, the royal finances recovered to a state of good health. Royal revenue rose by 36% between 1389 and 1396, and Parliament ceased to be a battleground among king, lords, and commons, and reverted to its proper function as a forum for discussions about royal government. If Edward III's court had celebrated chivalry and war, Richard celebrated the magnificence of the anointed king. New and grandiloquent forms of address were popularised. Whereas in the past English kings had been addressed as My Lord, now titles such as Your Highness and Your Majesty were introduced for the first time in mimicry of styles fashionable in France. Written addresses were even more pompous and theatrical, such as Most High and Puissant Prince, and Your High Royal Majesty. The hostile Walsingham called these not human but divine honours, and strange and flattering words hardly suitable for mere mortals. Richard's court became a centre for literary and artistic ideas, and some of the great writers of the age worked under the royal watch. 
Richard's interest in letters was transient, and he did not commission much literature himself, but his court was at the heart of the invention of England's native tongue as a language of high literature. John Gower, the great London scholar, claimed that he wrote his Confessio Amantis, a huge complex love poem of more than thirty thousand lines, at Richard's personal request, after meeting the king on a barge in 1386. The Confessio was written in English, and published in its first version in 1390, with a dedication to the king and Geoffrey Chaucer, whose Canterbury Tales was also written during his period of association with Richard's court. The aged French chronicler Froissart visited the English court and presented Richard with a collection of French poems. Sir John Clanvaux wrote elegant lyrics, and Edward, Duke of Albemarle, the son of Edmund, Duke of York, and thus Richard's cousin, translated a famous French hunting textbook into English. Even the soldierly courtier Sir John Montague was praised abroad by none other than the brilliant female Venetian writer Christina de Pisan for his appreciation of literature and skill as a poet. The king was a generous patron of artists and architects. By the 1390s Henry Yevelet, the master builder of the 14th century, was an old man in his seventies. He had been most productive under Edward III, but in 1393 he embarked on his most famous work for Richard, the reconstruction of Westminster Hall. He raised the walls and added a huge hammer-beam ceiling and ceremonial cathedral-like entrance. High in the hall he placed a series of white hearts, Richard's personal badge, a heart was a mature stag deer, while thirteen statues were commissioned of the kings of England from Edward the Confessor to Richard himself, emphasizing the continuity of English kingship into the Plantagenet era. Slightly later, Richard took receipt of the Wilton Diptych, a haunting and beautiful painting depicting the king being presented to the virgin and child by three saints, Edward the Confessor, the Saxon child King St. Edmund, and John the Baptist. Richard's obsession with Edward the Confessor was nearly as strong as Henry III's. Whereas warrior kings such as Edward I and Edward III favoured legendary soldiers like King Arthur and St. George, Richard saw himself as a prince of peace, a quality for which the Confessor was praised by the chroniclers. In 1395 the king altered the royal arms, quartering the fleur-de-lis and lion's passant gardened with the arms of the Confessor. The Wilton diptych is full of cryptic symbolism. References to Richard's ancient Anglo-French lineage are intertwined with unmistakable signs of his literal belief in his anointed divinity. The very angels surrounding the Virgin wear the badge of the White Heart, as though they were personally retained to protect the king. On the reverse of the diptych there is a larger painting of a heart, reclining with a chained crown around its neck. Yet beneath this celebratory, magnificent outward reinvention of kingship, there were signs that Richard himself, calmer and apparently more reasonable, was not quite a king transformed. Over the course of the early 1390s he actively recast his rule in a far more authoritarian, personal style. Kingship was not about the crown and its representation of public authority, it was about Richard himself. Knights and esquires across the counties of England began to receive the king's white heart livery. Many of them were men who already served in the royal administration. The king did not trust the machinery of his public authority. He felt he had to tie people to himself personally, visually, and ceremonially as their private lord. On great public occasions there was sometimes a spiteful edge to Richard's ceremony. When he fell out with the citizens of London in 1392 over the provision of a loan, reconciliation demanded pageantry on the scale of a full coronation. King Richard and Queen Anne processed through the streets in splendour, while the city guilds stood at obsequious attention. They were lavished with gifts. Boys dressed as angels awarded them golden crowns. A gold table was presented to them at the temple a great service of thanksgiving which included a procession to the shrine of Edward the Confessor was held at Westminster Abbey. For months afterward the Londoners were still sending gifts professing their great favour to the king. At Epiphany 1393 Richard received a camel and the queen a pelican. This sort of genuflection was in one sense part of kingship, 
but the most successful Plantagenet kings, Henry II, Richard I, and Edward III, had tended to mix roughly with their subjects rather than set themselves aloof. Henry II had abjured the regality of kingship in favour of riding in a makeshift camp and making light with all who came before him. Edward III fought incognito against his own knights at tournaments, and emphasised the role of the commons in governance. Even King John, a markedly inglorious king, had sat as a judge in cases involving the meanest wretches in his realm. Richard, however, seemed determined to amplify his singularity and superiority through court spectacle. By the middle of the decade there was something decidedly pathological about the king's desire to be venerated. He had always been a fragile, suspicious soul, and it now appeared his grasp on sanity was slipping. On June 7, 1394, Queen Anne died at Sheen. She was twenty-seven. She had been Richard's constant companion for years, and he loved her. Distraught with grief, he ordered that the palace where she died, on which he had spent vast sums renovating as their home, be ripped down. Then he swore a melodramatic oath, declaring that for a year he would not set foot inside any building save a church in which he had spent time with his late wife. His concern for ceremonial was so intense that he delayed her funeral for two months so that the right sort of wax torch could be brought over from Florence.